0: The Tale of SATAMPRA Zeros by Clark Ashton Smith I, SATAMPRA Zeros of Uzodarum, shall write with my left hand since I have no longer any other, the tale of everything that befell Tiruv Umpalios and myself in the shrine of the god Sithagua, which lies neglected by the worship of man in the jungle taken suburbs of Comorium, that long deserted capital of the hyperborean rulers. I shall write it with the violet juice of the Suvana palm, which turns to a blood-red rubic with the passage of years, on a strong vellum that is made from the skin of the mastodon, as a warning to all good thieves and adventurers who may hear some lying legend of the lost treasures of Camorium and be tempted thereby. Now, now, Tiruv Umpalios was my lifelong friend and my most trustworthy companion in all such enterprises as require deft fingers and a habit of mind both agile and adroit. I can say, without flattering myself or Tyruv either, that we carried to an incomparable success more than one undertaking from which fellow craftsmen of a much wider renown than ourselves might well have recoiled in dismay. To be more explicit, I refer to the theft of the jewels of Queen Cunambria, which were kept in a room where two score venomous reptiles wandered at will, and the breaking of the adamantine box of Acromai, in which were all the medallions of an early dynasty of Hyperborean kings. It is true that these medallions were difficult and perilous to dispose of, and that we sold them at a dire sacrifice to the captain of a barbarian vessel from remote Lemuria, but nevertheless the breaking of that box was a glorious feat, for it had to be done in absolute silence, on account of the proximity of a dozen guards who were all armed with tridents. We made use of a rare and mordant acid but I must not linger too long and too garrulously, by the way, however great the temptation to ramble on amid heroic memories and the high glamour of valiant or slightful deeds. In our occupation, as in all others, the vicissitudes of fortune are oftentimes to be reckoned with, and the goddess Chance is not always prodigal of her favours. So it was that Tiruv and I, at the time of which I write, had found ourselves in a condition of pecuniary depletion, which, though temporary, was nevertheless extreme, and was quite inconvenient and annoying, coming as it did on the heel of more prosperous days, of more profitable midnights. People had become accursedly chary of their jewels and other valuables, windows and doors were double-barred, new and perplexing locks were in use, guards had grown more vigilant or less somnolent. In short, all the natural difficulties of our profession had multiplied themselves. At one time we were reduced to the stealing of more bulky and less precious merchandise than that in which we customarily dealt— and even this had its dangers. Even now it humiliates me to remember the night when we were nearly caught with a sack of red yams, and I mention all this that I may not seem in any wise vainglorious. One evening in an alley of the more humble quarter of room, we stopped to count our available resources, and found that we had between us exactly three pesos, enough to buy a large bottle of pomegranate wine, or two loaves of bread. We debated the problem of expenditure. The bread... "'contended Tiruvampalios, "'will nurture our bodies, "'will lend a new and more expeditious force "'to our spent limbs and our toil-worn fingers. "'The pomegranate wine,' said I, "'will ennoble our thoughts, "'will inspire and illuminate our minds, "'and perchance will reveal to us "'a mode of escape from our present difficulties.' Tiru "'Tiruvampalios yielded without undue argument "'to my superior reasoning, "'and we sought the doors of an adjacent tavern. "'The wine was not of the best in regard to flavor,' "'but the quantity and strength were all that could be desired. "'We sat in the crowded tavern and sipped it at leisure "'till all the fire of the bright red liquor "'had transferred itself to our brains. "'The darkness and dubiety of our future ways "'became illumined as by the light of rose croissets, "'and the harsh aspect of the world was marvelously softened. "'Anon there came to me an inspiration.' "'Tiru I said, "'is there any reason why you and I, "'who are brave men and no wise subject to the fears and superstitions of the multitude, "'should not avail ourselves of the kingly treasures of Camorium, "'A day's journey from this tiresome town, "'a pleasant sojourn in the country, "'an afternoon or forenoon of archaeological research, "'and who knows what we should find?' "'You speak wisely and valiantly, my dear friend,' rejoined Tiru "'Indeed, there is no reason why we should not replenish our deflated finances "'at the expense of a few dead kings or gods.' Now Camorium, as all the world knows, was deserted many hundreds of years ago because of the prophecy of the white Sibyl of Pilarion, who foretold an undescribed and abominable doom for all mortal beings who should dare to tarry within its environs. Some say that this doom was a pestilence that would have come from the northern waste by the paths of the jungle tribes, others that it was a form of madness. At any rate, no one, neither king nor priest, nor merchant nor laborer nor thief, remained in Comorium to abide its arrival, but all departed in a single migration to found at the distance of a day's journey the new capital, Uzaldarum. And strange tales are told, of horrors and terrors not to be faced or overcome by man, that haunt forevermore the shrines and mausoleums and palaces of Comorium. And still it stands, a luster of marble, a magnificence of granite, all the throng with spires and cupolas and obelisks that the mighty trees of the jungle have not yet overtowered in a fertile inland valley of Hyperborea. And men say that in its unbroken vaults there lies entire and undespoiled as of yore the rich treasure of olden monarchs, that the high-built tombs retain the gems and electrum that were buried with their mummies, that the fanes have still their golden altar-vessels and furnishings, the idols of precious stones in ear and mouth and nostril and navel, I think that we should have set out that very night, if we had only the encouragement and inspiration of a second bottle of pomegranate wine. As it was, we decided to start at early dawn. The fact that we had no funds for our journey was of small moment, for, unless our former dexterity had altogether failed us, we could levy a modicum of involuntary tribute from the guileless folk of the countryside. In the meanwhile, we repaired to our lodgings, where the landlord met us with a grudging welcome and a most ungracious demand for his money. But the golden promise of the morrow had armed us against all such trivial annoyances, and we waved the fellow aside with a disdain that appeared to astonish, if not to subdue him. We slept late, and the sun had ascended far upon the azure acclivity of the heavens when we left the gates of Uzeldarum and took the northern road that leads toward Comorium. We breakfasted well on some amber melons and a stolen fowl that we cooked in the woods, and then resumed our wayfaring. In spite of a fatigue that increased upon us toward the end of the day, our trip was a pleasurable one, and we found much to divert us in the varying landscapes through which we passed, and in their people. Some of these people, I am sure, must still remember us with regret, for we did not deny ourselves anything procurable that tempted our fancy or our appetites. It was an agreeable country, full of farms and orchards and running waters and green flowery woods. At last, some while in the course of the afternoon, we came to the ancient road, long disused and well nigh overgrown, which runs from the highway through the elder jungle to Camorium. No one saw us enter this road, and thenceforward we met no one. At a single step we passed from all human ken, and it seemed that the silence of the forest around us had lain unstirred by mortal footfall ever since the departure of the legendary king and his people so many centuries before. The trees were vaster than any we had ever seen, They were interwoven by the endless labyrinthine volumes, the eternal web-like convolutions of creepers almost as old as they themselves. The flowers were unwholesomely large. Their petals bore a lethal pallor or a sanguinary scarlet, and their perfumes were overpoweringly sweet or fetid. The fruits along our way were of great size, with purple and orange and russet colors, but somehow we did not dare to eat them. The woods grew thicker and more rampant as we went on, and the road, though paved with granite slabs, was more and more overgrown, but trees had rooted themselves in the interstices, often forcing the wide blocks apart. Though the sun had not yet neared the horizon, the shades that were cast upon us from gigantic boles and branches became ever denser, and moved in a dark green twilight fraught with oppressive odors of lush growth and of vegetable corruption. There were no birds nor animals such as one would think to find in any wholesome forest, But at rare intervals, a stealthy viper with pale and heavy coils glided away from our feet among the rank leaves of the roadside, or some enormous moth with baroque and evil-colored mottlings flew before us and disappeared in the dimness of the jungle. Abroad, already in the half-light, huge purpureal bats with eyes like tiny rubies arose at our approach from the poisonous-looking fruits on which they feasted, and watched us with malign attention as they hovered noiselessly in the air above and we felt, somehow, that we were being watched by other and invisible presences, and a sort of awe fell upon us, and a vague fear of the monstrous jungle, and we no longer spoke aloud, or frequently, but only in rare whispers. Among other things we had contrived to procure along our way a large leathern bottle full of palm spirit. A few sips of the ardent liquor had already served to lighten more than once the tedium of our journey, and now it was to stand us in good stead." Each of us drank a liberal draught, and presently the jungle became less awesome, and we wondered why we had allowed the silence and the gloom, the watchful bats and the brooding immensity to weigh upon our spirits, even for a brief while, and I think that after a second draught we began to sing. When twilight came and a waxing moon shone high in the heavens after the hidden day star had gone down, we were so imbued with the fervor of adventure that we decided to push on and reach Comorium that very night. We supped on food that we had levied from the country people, and the leathern bottle passed between us several times. Then, considerably fortified, and replete with hardihood and the valor of a lofty enterprise, we resumed our journeying. Indeed, we had not much farther to go. Even as we were debating between ourselves an ardor that made us oblivious of our long wayfaring, what costly loot we would first choose from among all the mythical treasures of Camorium, we saw in the moonlight the gleam of marble cupolas above the treetops, and then between the boughs and bowls the wan pillars of shadowy porticos. A few more steps, and we trod upon paved streets that ran transversely from the high road we were following into the tall, luxuriant woods on either side, where the fronds of mighty palm ferns overtopped the roofs of ancient houses. We paused, and again the silence of an elder desolation claimed our lips, for the houses were white and still as sepulchres, and the deep shadows that lay around and upon them were chill and sinister and mysterious as the very shadow of death. It seemed that the sun could not have shone for ages in this place, that nothing warmer than the spectral beams of the cadaverous moon had touched the marble and granite ever since that universal migration prompted by the prophecy of the white sibyl of Polarium. "'I wish it were daylight,' murmured Tyruv Ompolios. His low tones were oddly sibilant, were unnaturally audible in the dead stillness. "'Tiruvum I replied, "'I trust that you are not growing superstitious. "'I should be loath to think that you are succumbing "'to the infantile fancies of the multitude. "'Howbeit, let us have another drink.' "'We lightened the leathern bottle appreciably "'by the demand we now made upon its contents, "'and were marvelously cheered thereby, "'so much so indeed that we forthwith "'started to explore a left-hand avenue, "'which, though it had been laid out "'with mathematical directness, "'vanished at no great distance "'among the fronded trees.' Here, somewhat apart from the other buildings, in a sort of square that the jungle had not yet wholly usurped, we found a small temple of antique architecture which gave the impression of being far older even than the adjoining edifices. It also differed from these in its material, for it was built of a dark basaltic stone heavily encrusted with lichens that seemed of a coeval antiquity. It was square in form, and had no domes, nor spires, no façade of pillars, and only a few narrow windows high above the ground. Such temples are rare in Hyperborea nowadays, but we knew it for a shrine of Sithagua, one of the elder gods, who receives no longer any worship from men, but before whose ashen altars people say the furtive and ferocious beasts of the jungle, the ape, the giant sloth, and the long-toothed tiger, have sometimes been seen to make obeisance, and have been heard to howl or whine their inarticulate prayers. The temple, like the other buildings, was in a state of well-nigh perfect preservation, the only signs of decay were in the carven lintel of the door, which had crumbled and splintered away in several places. The door itself, wrought of a swarthy bronze all overgreened by time, stood slightly ajar. Knowing that there should be a jeweled idol within, not to mention the various altar pieces of valuable metals, we felt the urge of temptation. Surmising that strength might be required to force open the verdigris-covered door, we drank deeply and then applied ourselves to the task. Of course, the hinges were rusted, and only by dint of mighty and muscular heavings did the door at last begin to move. As we renewed our efforts, it swung slowly inward with a hideous grating and grinding that mounted to an almost vocal screech in which we seemed to hear the tones of some unhuman entity. The black interior of the temple yawned before us, and from it there surged an odor of long imprisoned mustiness combined with a queer and unfamiliar fatidity. To this, however, we gave little heed in the natural excitement of the moment. With my unusual foresight, I had provided myself with a piece of resinous wood early in the day, thinking that it might serve as a torch in case of any nocturnal explorations of comorium. I lit this torch, and we entered the shrine. The place was paved with immense quinquangular flags of the same material from which its walls were built. It was quite bare, except for the image of the god enthroned at the further end the two-tiered altar of obscenely figured metal before the image, and a large and curious-looking basin of bronze supported on three legs which occupied the middle of the floor. Giving this basin hardly a glance, we ran forward and I thrust my torch into the face of the idol. I had never seen an image of Sithagua before, but I recognized him without difficulty from the descriptions I had heard. He was very squat and pot-bellied. His head was more like that of a monstrous toad than a deity— and his whole body was covered with an imitation of short fur, giving somehow a vague suggestion of both the bat and the sloth. His sleepy lids were half lowered over his globular eyes, and the tip of a queer tongue issued from his fat mouth. In truth, he was not a comely or personable sort of god, and I did not wonder at the cessation of his worship, which could only have appealed to very brutal and aboriginal men at any time. Tirov, Polios and I began to swear simultaneously by the names of more urbane and civilized deities when we saw that not even the commonest of semi-precious gems was visible anywhere, either upon or within any feature or member of this execrable image. With a niggardliness beyond parallel, even the eyes had been carven from the same dull stone as the rest of the abominable thing, and mouth, nose, ears, and all other orifices were unadorned. We could only wonder at the avarice or poverty of the beings who had wrought this unique bestiality. Now that our minds were no longer enthralled by the hope of immediate riches, we became more keenly aware of our surroundings in general, and in particular we noticed the unfamiliar fetter I have spoken of previously, which had now increased uncomfortably in strength. We found that it came from the bronze basin which we proceeded to examine, even without any idea that the examination would be profitable or even pleasant. The basin, I have said, was very large. Indeed, it was no less than six feet in diameter by three in depth, and its brim was the height of a tall man's shoulder from the floor. The three legs that bore it were curved and massive and terminated in feline paws, displaying their talons. When we approached and peered over the brim, we saw that the bowl was filled with a sort of viscous and semi-liquescent substance, quite opaque and of a sooty color. It was from this that the odor came an odor which, though unsurpassably foul, was nevertheless not an odor of putrefaction, but resembled rather the smell of some vile and unclean creature of the marshes. The odor was almost beyond endurance, and we were about to turn away when we perceived a slight ebullition of the surface, as if the sooty liquid were being agitated from within by some submerged animal or other entity. This ebullition increased rapidly. The center swelled as if with the action of some powerful yeast and we watched in utter horror while an uncouth, amorphous head with dull and bulging eyes arose gradually on an ever-lengthening neck, and stared us in the face with primordial malignity. Then two arms, if one could call them arms, likewise arose, inch by inch, and we saw that the thing was not, as we had thought, a creature immersed in the liquid, but that the liquid itself had put forth this hideous neck and head, "'and was now forming these damnable arms "'that groped towards us with tentacle-like appendages "'in lieu of claws or hands. "'A fear which we had never experienced, "'even in dreams, of which we had found no hint "'in our most perilous nocturnal excursions, "'deprived us of the faculty of speech, "'but not of movement. "'We recoiled a few paces from the bowl, "'and coincidentally with our steps, "'the horrible neck and arms continued to lengthen. "'Then the whole mass of the dark fluid began to rise, and far more quickly than the suvanna juice runs from my pen, it poured over the rim of the basin like a torrent of black quicksilver, taking as it reached the floor an undulant Ophidian form which immediately developed more than a dozen short legs. What unimaginable horror of protoplastic life! What loathly spawn of the primordial slime had come forth to confront us we did not pause to consider or conjecture. The monstrosity was too awful to permit of. The monstrosity was too awful to permit of even a brief contemplation. Also, its intentions were too plainly hostile, and it gave evidence of anthropophagic inclinations, for it slithered toward us with an unbelievable speed and celerity of motion, opening as it came a toothless mouth of amazing capacity. As it gaped upon us, revealing a tongue that uncoiled like a long serpent, its jaws widened with the same extreme elasticity that accompanied all its other movements. We saw that our departure from the Fane of Sithagua had become most imperative, and turning our backs to all the abominations of that unhallowed shrine, we crossed the sill with a single leap and ran headlong in the moonlight through the suburbs of Camorium. We rounded every convenient corner, we doubled upon our tracks behind the palaces of time-forgotten nobles and the warehouses of unrecorded merchants. We chose preferably the places where the incursive jungle trees were highest and thickest. At last on a by-road, where the outlying houses were no longer visible, we paused and dared to look back. Our lungs were intolerably strained, were ready to burst with their heroic effort, and the various fatigues of the day had told upon us all too grievously. But when we saw at our heels the black monster following us with a serpentine and undulating ease, like a torrent that descends a long declivity, our flagging limbs were miraculously reanimated, and we plunged from the betraying light on the by-road into the pathless jungle, hoping to evade our pursuer in the labyrinth of bulls and vines and gigantic leaves. We stumbled over roots and fallen trees. We tore our reins and lacerated our skins on the savage brambles. We collided in the gloom with huge trunks and limber saplings that bent before us. We heard the hissing of tree snakes that spat their venom at us from the boughs above, and the grunting or howling of unseen animals when we trod upon them in our precipitate flight. But we no longer dared to stop or look behind. We must have continued our headlong peregrinations for hours. The moon, which had given us little light at best through the heavy leafage, fell lower and lower among the enormous fronded ponds and intricate creepers. But its final rays, when it sank, were all that saved us from a noisome marsh, with mounds and hassocks of bog-concealing grass, amid whose perilous environs and among whose mephitic rim we were compelled to run without pause or hesitation or time to choose our footing, with our damnable pursuer dogging every step. Now when the moon had gone down, our flight became wilder and more hazardous, a veritable delirium of terror, exhaustion, confusion, and desperate, difficult progression among obstacles to which we no longer gave any distinct heed or comprehension, through a night that clung to us and clogged us like an evil load, like the toils of a monstrous web. It would seem that the creature behind us, with its unbelievable facilities of motion and self-elongation, could have overtaken us at any time. But apparently it desired to prolong the game. And so, in a semi-eternal protraction of inconclusive horrors, the night wore on. But we never dared to stop or look back. Far off and wan a glimmering twilight grew among the trees, a foreomening of the hidden morn. Wearier than the dead and longing for any repose, any security, even that of some indiscernible tomb, we ran toward the light and stumbled forth from the jungle upon a paved street among marble and granite buildings. Dimly, dully, beneath the crushing of our fatigue, we realized that we had wandered in a circle and had come back to the suburbs of Camorium. Before us, No farther away than the toss of a javelin was the dark temple of Sithagua. Again we ventured to look back, and saw the elastic monster whose legs had now lengthened till it had towered above us, and whose maw was wide enough to have swallowed us both at a mouthful. And whose maw was wide enough to have swallowed us both at a mouthful. It followed us with an effortless glide, with a surety of motion and intention too horrible, too cynical to be borne. We ran into the temple of Sithagua whose door was still open just as we had left it, and closing the door behind us with a fearful immediacy, we contrived, in the superhuman strength of our desperation, to shoot one of the rusty bolts. Now, while the chill dreariness of the dawn fell down in narrow shafts through the windows high in the wall, we tried with a truly heroic resignation to compose ourselves, and waited for whatever our destiny should bring. And while we waited... The god Sathagu appeared upon us with an even more imbecile squatness and vileness and bestiality than he had shown in the torchlight. I think I have said that the lintel of the door had crumbled and splintered away in several places. In fact, the beginning process of ruin had made three apertures, through which the daylight now filtered, and which were large enough to have permitted the passage of small animals or sizable serpents. For some reason, our eyes were drawn to these apertures." We had not gazed long, when the light was suddenly intercepted in all three openings, and then a black material began to pour through them, and ran down the door in a triple stream to the flagstones, where it reunited and resumed the form of the thing that had followed us. Farewell, Tiruv I cried with such remaining breath as I could summon. Then I ran and concealed myself behind the image of Sathagua, which was large enough to screen me from view, but unfortunately was too small to serve this purpose for more than one person. Siruvum would have preceded me with the same laudable idea of self-preservation, but I was the quicker. And seeing that there was not room for both of us to the rearward of Sithagua, he returned my valediction and climbed into the great bronze basin which alone could now afford a moment's concealment in the bareness of the fane. Peering from behind that execrable god whose one merit was the width of his abdomen and his haunches, I observed the actions of the monster." No sooner had Tyruv crouched down in the three-legged bowl when the nameless enormity reared itself up like a sooty pillar and approached the basin. The head had now changed in form and position till it was no more than a vague imprint of features on the middle of a body without arms, legs, or neck. The thing loomed above the brim for an instant, gathering all its bulk in an imminent mass on a sort of tapering tail, and then like a lapsing wave, it fell into the bowl upon Tyruv its whole body seemed to open and form an immense mouth as it sank down from sight. Hardly able to breathe in my horror, I waited, but no sound and no movement came from the basin, not even a groan from Tiro of Umpalios. Finally, with infinite slowness and trepidation and caution, I ventured to emerge from behind Sothagua, and passing the bowl on tiptoe, I managed to reach the door. Now, In order to win my freedom, it would be necessary to draw back the bolt and open the door, and this I greatly feared to do because of the inevitable noise. I felt that it would be highly injudicious to disturb the entity in the bowl while it was digesting Tiruvampalios, but there seemed to be no other way if I was ever to leave that abominable fane. Even as I shot back the bolt, A single tentacle sprang out with infernal rapidity from the basin and elongating itself across the whole room, it caught my right wrist in a lethal clutch. It was unlike anything I have ever touched. It was indescribably viscid and slimy and cold. It was loathsomely soft like the foul mire of a bog and mordantly sharp as an edged metal with an agonizing suction and constriction that made me scream aloud as the clutch tightened upon my flesh, cutting into me like a vise of knife blades. In my struggles to free myself, I drew the door open and fell forward on the sill. A moment of awful pain, and then I became aware that I had broken away from my captor. But looking down, I saw that my hand was gone, leaving a strangely withered stump from which little blood issued. Then gazing behind me into the shrine, I saw the tentacle recoil and shorten till it passed from view behind the rim of the basin, bearing my lost hand to join whatever now remained of Tirov Umpalios. I hope you all enjoy this recording. This story. I hope you all enjoy this story. This is my third attempt at recording it. If I could just keep everything straight. This is my third attempt at recording it because the first time the speaker was echoing back at me and throwing me off. The second time, uh, so I so I turned down the speaker volume, so it wouldn't echo back at me. And except that because I didn't have my glasses on while I was reading, <clears throat> uh, it uh, I, I accidentally turned down the microphone volume, and so that didn't work either. So this is take three. The rich treasure of olden monarchs, that the high-built tombs remain. Got this far, and messed it up. <sighs> that the high built tombs retained the gems and elect. I should be loath to think that you are succumbing. Succumbing? Succumbing. Succumbing. Me. Thinking that it might serve as a torch in case of any The place was paven with immense quingangular fla. Quinquangular. Wow. That's a word. Opening as it came, a toothless. M- Opening as it came a toothless mouth. <laughs> toothless mouth. Toothless mouth. Opening as it came a toothless mouth of amazing capacity.